Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from past week here on Monaco Radio. This week, we head to Vilnius for a historic NATO summit and speak with the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, Nikolai Denkov. It is for the sake of security of Europe to help Ukraine because this would also keep the risks, the danger, far away from the borders of Bulgaria. Plus, songs that are defining the summer of love. All that and much more in The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a highlight from the foreign desk. A steady flow of pro-Russian propaganda has infiltrated the news media landscapes of several European countries, including Bulgaria, where the Kremlin's talking points are echoed by several politicians and media pundits in the country. Bulgaria's new prime minister, Nikolai Denkov, however, has been working hard to steer his government in a pro-NATO and pro-Ukraine direction, pushing for greater action to be taken against the Kremlin's activities in Bulgaria. Last week at the NATO summit in Vilnius, Monaco's Andrew Muller sat down with Prime Minister Denkov. Andrew began by asking about pro-Russian remarks made by Bulgaria's current president, Ruman Radev. It was very interesting to see that we were discussing military issues and military aid and so on, but on the other hand, all the time he was changing the topic and transforming it into the human problems, human catastrophe, the humanitarian aspect of this war. And this is something that really the people appreciate and understand that, okay, that the war has its human cost. I mean, the visit, as you know, attracted an amount of global attention because he gave your president quite a going over on live television. There is disagreement, I think, between you and President Radev, who has been very unkeen on large-scale assistance to Ukraine. How difficult a relationship is that to manage? Let me put it in this way. So what we do and what I presented as positions of Bulgaria today and yesterday, this is the position of the parliament, this is the position that is of the Council of Ministers, so this is the official position of Bulgaria. The president has, has the right for his position, and I really appreciate when Vladimir Zelensky was asked about the position of the Bulgarian president, he said, okay, I'm a guest here, so I respect all the positions. And from this viewpoint, I think I should also respect the institutional position of the presidency. But Bulgaria is a parliamentary republic, so the official position of the country is what we presented today and yesterday. But is there still a significant pro-Russian constituency, either among Bulgaria's people or perhaps as a consequence among Bulgaria's politicians? There is a lot of history coming back many, even centuries ago, if you like. And that's why there is some sentiment that's not very typical for other countries. On the other hand, we should explain better to the people that when there is an invasion, there is an aggressor and there is a victim of this aggression, first the human values require that we help the victim and second it is for the sake of security of Europe to help Ukraine because this would also keep the risks, the danger far away from the borders of Bulgaria. So there is a practical element and there is a human element that we should explain better to our people. 
I could say that there is a lot of propaganda in our media and that's why sometimes it's quite obscure to see what are the the real values that are followed by Europe and by the other countries here in the summit. So one of the tasks that we as government have is to clarify better why we support Ukraine, why we are members of NATO. It might sound a bit weak position that we have at that moment, but I think there are reasons for this and we should just work harder to explain to the people why we have this position at the political level. But what part of your view of it do you think is not registering with that constituency, though? Because it does seem, I think, to most of Europe like a fairly open and shut case. Russia has launched an unprovoked war of aggression against its neighbour. That pro-Russian sentiment you mention, even in the media, is it entirely organic or is Russia actually deliberately doing something to amplify it? I think it's a combination of the two. So when there is some sentiment that is coming back, as I said, in history, in culture, there was a lot of mutual influence along the centuries, then it is much easier as compared to the other countries to use the propaganda and to say, okay, listen, this war is not just aggression, it was provoked in some way and so on and so forth. So I think it's more a combination of the two. But how pernicious do you think the Russian influence is? I mean, obviously, as you know, at least one MP, Delian Pisky, has been sanctioned by the US under Magnitsky Act. There's various rumours continually doing the rounds about Kostadin Kostadinov's revival party generally. Do you think there are Bulgarian MPs in your parliament who are actually on the hook to Russia? There are two parties that I could say quite freely and quite openly explain that they're pro-Russian and they're a minority in the parliament, but they're vocal. One of them is a very old party, more than 100 years of existence. So that's why they are heard by the population. And as I said, we should just do our work to explain better to the people where is the logical understanding why we should act in this way and why we act in this way and fight with the propaganda with on one side with the logical arguments but on the other hand also fighting with the fears of the people because what we see is that these two parties very often they just generate different kind of fears of the people because it's an easier way emotionally to get their attention. What have you made of what has been offered to Ukraine at this summit. President Zelensky's views seem to have shifted somewhat over the last couple of days. He did arrive all guns blazing, calling the communique absurd, and today he seems to be suggesting that he understands that this is probably the best he can do in the circumstances. Do you think Ukraine should have been offered a more definite timeline? No, I think it is impossible to give a timeline under these circumstances because we don't know what will happen with the war, when it will end, how it will end. So from this viewpoint, for me, the decision of the NATO Council and what is written in the communique is quite logical. This is what is possible today. So that's why I think the reaction of Volodymyr Zelensky was more emotional, but when he understood what what are the real reasons and also what is the status of this NATO-Ukraine Council, 
then he understood what is the meaning of this decision. So I think he understood at the end. Do you think there's an amount of nervousness among Western European nations about the idea of what Ukraine's arrival in NATO and potentially the EU will mean? Because that will mean an enormous shift of the balance of power east. You will have, certainly just between Ukraine and Poland, two mighty, heavily armed, extremely large countries who are going to want a much bigger say than they're presently having. And Ukraine in particular will think quite rightly, we just fought a war for you people. I think that there was a very good discussion that there are different types of risks. Obviously, Russia now is creating a significant risk from the east, so it is quite normal to have defense forces that are sufficiently powerful on this flank. On the other hand, there are discussions about other risks that come from different other regions. Let's say, for example, there was a discussion that we should pay more attention to what is happening in Africa and that we should work harder to cooperate with African countries. So I think there was a very balanced discussion that we should evaluate the risk properly and then we should act according to the level of the risk that we see. I don't see any tension from this viewpoint. I just want to come back finally to that point you made earlier about how your government, and I think you could probably extend the argument to other governments, need to do a better job of explaining what is in play here and explaining the stakes. How do you overcome the obvious inbuilt resistance to this? Because you you get the people who are mired in the other way of thinking basically replying, well, that's what you would say. My impression is that people like me, we try to be very logical and to use logical arguments. And this is not necessarily the best approach in this case. We should combine these logical arguments with a level of emotion that will touch the souls of these people so they'll understand the logical arguments and the emotions that are related to these logical arguments. So it's more difficult way to present your logical arguments, but we have to do it. Otherwise, they don't hear us. Is that an adjustment you can decide to make, though? I mean, I know you have a background in science and therefore in logic and reason. It's not necessarily the easiest change of gears, is it? Yes, but that's why we have to work also with other people to combine the scientific approach with the people that understand better the psychology, if you like, of the people, the PR specialists. We still need these logical arguments, but we need to present them in a way in which they will be heard much better than until now. That was the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, Nikolai Denkov, speaking to Monaco's Andrew Muller. You can hear the full conversation by tuning in to the Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Curator of Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now, every Friday on our show, The Monaco Daily, we choose a member of staff to tell us about their nerdy pleasures. We had the band Genesis, Lord of the Rings, Taylor Swift... But this week's an interesting one. We have Helmi Pillai telling her love affair with the Nord Stream pipelines. Geopolitical tension, explosions, sabotage, secret agents, and international political mystery. What more could a girl possibly want? Hi, I'm Helmi Pillai, and this is my nerdy pleasure. Or as I like to call it, the story of how I learned to stop worrying and loved the Nord Stream pipeline explosions. It was 2 a.m. on a cool September night. The waves were gently rocking in the Baltic Sea, and even the fish had gone to bed. Or at least that's how I like to imagine it. I don't know, I wasn't there. But anyway, back to the story. It's the middle of the night, 
near the small Danish island of Bornholm. All should be calm and peaceful, when suddenly... Sabotage is thought to be behind three leaks in the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines connecting Russia to Europe. A series of mysterious explosions blow up three of the four Nord Stream gas pipelines. And for a moment, it feels like anything could happen. World War III, a nuclear blast, the end of this planet as we know it, all the nightmare scenarios, basically. Of course, people much smarter than me knew instantly that wasn't going to happen. The pipelines, which once were the lifeline of European industry, were hardly in use anymore anyway. So whoever placed the explosives clearly wanted to make a point more than they wanted to cause damage. And no one was going to trigger Article 5 over it. But still, what a way to make a point. And what a weird point to make. And for a moment, it really did seem like a big deal. Maybe not World War III big, but still big. I mean... Surely you couldn't blow up pipelines on the exclusive economic zones of NATO and EU member states and get away with it. And maybe that would have been the case. But the problem was, we didn't know who did it. And, though I hate to spoil the story, we still don't. If anything, ten months later, the picture looks even more confusing. So there's been a lot of news reporting, a lot of interest on this very simple question. Who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines? So... Let's have a look at the different theories. I promise I won't get too conspiratorial, because truthfully, I have no idea. So, theory number one. Russia did it. On the surface, this seems like the most obvious explanation. Yes, it might be a bit strange to blow up your own pipelines, but maybe the whole point was to confuse people. Or to frame Ukraine. It wouldn't be the first time the Kremlin did something weird. And also, if not Russia, who? Why would anyone else do that? And for a while, this really seemed to be the conclusion to the story. Basically, we can't be sure, but let's be real, it was probably Russia. But then, and I am cutting corners a little here because there have been many twists and turns. The Pentagon leaks happened. Which brings us to theory number two. Ukraine did it. The Pentagon leak said that the US knew that Ukraine was planning to attack the pipelines. And Washington had told them not to do it. But maybe Kiev didn't listen, and did it anyway, to stop Europe from buying gas from Russia. I mean, could you really blame them? Or maybe it was neither Russia nor Ukraine, but the US itself that did it. AKA theory number three. The greatest defense of this theory is President Biden warning Russia in February of last year that, quote, If Russia invades, that means tanks or troops crossing the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. A bit suspicious, sure, but hardly conclusive evidence. So, basically, we don't know. Maybe Biden or Stoltenberg or Putin or even Salini knows, but I don't know. And I'm certainly not going to start speculating on such serious matters. At least not on air. I have to admit, on the occasional sleepless night, I will toss and turn terrified that I'll never find out, that I'll have to just keep waking up every single day for the rest of my life without ever knowing the truth about who blew up the Nord Stream gas pipelines. But then again, I guess there are worse fates, like, I don't know, being a pipeline and getting blown up. For Monocle Radio, I'm Helmi Pillai.
And we're back with the curator. Now highlight from the Monocle Weekly. I spoke with Laura McGann, the director of free diving documentary The Deepest Breath on Netflix, and also free diver and actor Christoph Conan. Free diving is one of the world's deadliest extreme sports. It's very simple. The deepest dive wins. You gotta swim the length of a 70-story skyscraper. Laura McGann and Christoph Conan, welcome to Monocle Radio. A uh, pleasure to have you both here to talk about The Deepest Breath, which is a fascinating documentary. And Laura, perhaps I'll start with you. I mean, I was just mentioning before, I've always been fascinated by free diving, the scene in general, the film Le Grand Bleu, for example, is one of my favorites. And I was so happy in that sense with The Deepest Breath. Tell us about your connection, actually, to the sea. What, were you always inspired by that, or was it something completely of an unusual topic for you? Well, I've always, you know, I used to bodyboard as a kid on holidays, uh, snorkeling. But I, I suppose I moved to the sea there a couple of years ago, and I go swimming with the girls uh, a couple of times a week. And, yeah, I, I just, like, fall in love with the sea, I suppose, over the last maybe 10 years or so. And so when I read about Stephen and Alessia and mentioned freediving, I had to Google what is freediving because I didn't know. And I was presented with these like beautiful images of people behaving more like seals and dolphins than human beings under the water with no air tanks and you know, being filmed by another freediver, I didn't know this at the time, who was able to kind of move in with such like fluidity and speed, I suppose, under the water. I love Blue Planet, all that kind of thing, like mm. happily sit for, you know, back in the day in my 20s, like a whole day watching Blue Planet. But this was something I hadn't seen before. It looked different and the blue was just stunning and the beautiful light coming down and visually it just really struck me as being special, something really special, something incredibly cinematic. And then as I learned more about Stephen and Alessia, it just affected me on a whole other level. And it was really their passion for life and for doing their own thing and for kind of going, you know, I'm not going to do maybe what my parents expect me to do or what society expects me to do. I kind of have this other idea and I'm going to do that. I think that's what maybe people like about the story as well. Is that, And it's what I liked about it initially. I, you know, I was maybe looking at people who were doing something that I might like to do and maybe hadn't been brave enough to do yet, I suppose. And Christoph is here as well. And Christoph, you are actually a free diver, right? And of course, you're one of the talking heads in the film. But tell us, how, how was it to be part of this documentary? Because of course, for you, I know there's the emotional connotation of it as well. So yeah, when I first got contacted by um, Laura's team, it was a really nice chat. And uh, it really immediately felt like people that cared about the story and people that wanted to get the facts right and were interested in the, the human part of it. And then I had a conversation with Laura, and it was really lovely. We got along instantly, I think, and I just felt like it was r the right thing to do, to share and to make sure that Steve's story was out there and that he wouldn't be forgotten and that his legacy would live on. And, and I think Laura was the best person to do it. Like She even lived 
across the street from Steve's father. Like it was just meant to be, I think. That was actually total coincidence. Yeah, wow. like I had been chatting to different people online all over Europe, kind of over in the States. And and then somebody said, you know, meet with Peter, his dad. He lives at this address in Dunleary, Dublin. I said, oh, geez, that's across the road from my house. <laughs> and, and I have to ask, it's impressive, you know, the footage. I mean, you had, I mean, because it looked like you were there with Dan in a way at, at all times. It's uh, how was that process of research as well? Because it, it really felt like quite close to the subjects as well. Yeah, the archive or the footage that we've gathered over the years has a beautiful intimacy to it. And I suppose COVID kind of, because we couldn't go anywhere for a while, we had this extended research period and it did no harm because it just meant we could learn more and we had more time to really research the story, find out what is the most important parts of, you know, Stephen and Alessia's lives that really reflect the true meaning of the story. And so we were able to say, look, but there's this event, right, we've one photo there's somebody in the background of the photo, I think they're holding the GoPro camera. Who's that? And Valesia might say, that's Stefano. We can touch with Stefano. Stefano, do you have anything from that day in 2006? And he'd go in, have a look in the wardrobe and he'd say, oh yeah, actually, do you know I actually have 500 gigabytes of that? And that just kept happening. That happened over and over. Like I stopped keeping count. We were really, really lucky because... People would be filming freediving events, you know, the avid filmmakers who are doing their own thing and they'd be up close and they'd be with their GoPros or they'd be with a whole lot of cameras set up and like the community is really good at documenting itself. But also like Stephen and Alessia, like if somebody turned around and wanted to make a documentary about me tomorrow, there'd be about three photos, you know, <laughs> whereas like, you know, with Stephen and Alessia, it just felt like the story, their stories were just being covered from the minute they were born, you know, they're not Kardashians. It was unusual. And so, you know, the film is testament to all of the people who filmed or recorded stuff with Stephen Leslie and Stephen Leslie who recorded stuff themselves. So we had this beautiful wealth of incredible archive above and below the ocean. And what we did then was we kind of identified where the holes in it were. And even in a scene, within a scene, we might just be missing because oftentimes the cinematographer would focus on the athlete as opposed to the safety diver. Stephen's the safety diver. And so we'd say, oh, we need a, we need a shot of Stephen here. He's waiting for his athlete to return from uh, 100 metres down or whatever. And so we went into the Caribbean, Mexico and the Caribbean Sea and amazing scuba diver who would go down and film this massive big shot. And Stephen would be like a you know speck of dust in the middle of it. So we had this amazing honour of like having the archive, but then going and getting to make a film under the sea as well and to weave it in with the archive. So it felt part of it and you always felt like you were in the scene. So those shots are just speckled throughout the film and just help kind of give the audience a clearer vision of what exactly was going on in the day. So as a filmmaker, it was an adventure. You know, it really was. It was amazing. It was done very beautifully, I have to say. And Christoph, tell us, what's your fascination with deep diving? As I said, you know, visually for me, I think that is something quite beautiful and unique. But I mean, you are a free diver. Tell us, uh, when did you actually start doing it? I started actually as a child, funny enough. I didn't know that I was doing it, but I grew up in a little village next to the riverside. And uh, there's a little lake in my village and I belong to my uncle. And in the summer, we would always be out there swimming and splashing around. And 
I mean, I would put stones in my pocket and go down to the bottom and sit there and wait. I don't know what I was waiting for or what I was doing, but 20 years later, it turned out that I was actually a born freediver. But the real competitive side of freediving and the training I started doing in, in Dahab, in Egypt, when I um, met Steve, actually. So Steve introduced me to the sport, and I was a bit hesitating in the beginning, but the moment I popped my head on the water, I was, I was hooked, and I wanted to go deeper and longer and, and more to get absorbed by the sea and the beauty of it. How interesting. You are, you know, an actor as well, I believe. And so how did you mix those two kind of together, free dive and acting? Because I know also you teach some Hollywood actors about how to free dive. Tell us a bit more about that. So I was working with this theater company in Belgium and we were touring the world. And I was a bit of fed up with having Brussels as my waiting room for the next tour to happen. So I decided to move to Egypt and fill in those blanks, so to speak, with diving. First as a scuba diver and then meeting Steve, introducing me to the sport and becoming a freediver. And I was so hooked that when I had to leave Dahab for another tour, I was a bit bummed out because I, I just want to train, I just want to be in the water and freedive. That's all I wanted to do. So I kind of decided to stop theater at that point, which was silly because it was my first love and I still wanted to continue with it. But I was so hooked on freediving. Then a few years later, when all the tours were kind of done and I had to move back to Belgium to look for new work, I just settled down in Brussels again and I had the honor to start working in a film studio, like an underwater film tank. So they offered me this job, this great job that I never imagined that actually existed. And I started training and coaching actors for their underwater work, which for me was best of both worlds because I was still working on film sets and still in contact with acting and freediving. So I could combine all these elements and bring my expertise into that. And it was a wonderful job. That's amazing. That sounds like a dream job as well. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it's I like such it. an yeah. amazing story. And which actors? Idris Elba is one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Idris Elba is one of them. I actually trained him here in London for uh, Luther, the Project Luther, together with Andy Serkis, a fantastic guy. I trained Rammstein, the German uh, oh, wow. metal band. <laughs> They came to shoot in our studio. Yeah, a few more. And Laura, coming back to you as well, I mean, the film, besides the beauty of freediving and the dangers of it as well, it's a love story. And it's quite touching and moving. Of course, you know, we're not saying what happens in the end and everything. But tell us, how was Alessia's reaction to the documentary? I'm very curious about that. Of course, she's one of the main characters together with Stephen, of course. How did she feel about it in a way? Yeah, look, myself and two of our producers, John and Sarah, we, when the film was pretty much finished, we actually showed it to Peter first in Dublin, Stephen's dad and some more members of the family. And then myself and John and Sarah went over to Rome and, and sat down with Alessia in her house and her, her dad and her boyfriend. And we watched the film and, you know, yeah, we were like nervous as we were with Peter, you know, we're... I've always just really worked to just be honest, you know, with the story. And, you know, sometimes there's a wonderful moment and sometimes it's not such a wonderful moment as well. So we were nervous and uh, Alessia watched it and she just gave me a hug afterwards. And I burst out crying. She wasn't even crying. I burst out crying with 
Every with relief that, you know, she was happy like Alessia had given so much to the project and it was important to me that she was happy with it. And afterwards she asked for a copy of it so that she could show some of her friends and, and family and her coach actually so that she didn't have to explain what had happened. She could just get them to watch the film and then they would understand. And for me, I just thought, oh my God, I'm so thankful that she's getting some use out of this film. Like she's mm-hmm. given so much to this. I'm glad that it's of use to her in some shape or form. Yeah, that meant a lot to me. She wanted to be better than the best freediver ever. When you push close to a limit, a lot can go wrong. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And of course, the Monaco Companion is out, it's the third installment, and we are reading some of the essays in the book. This is one I wrote. It's an ode to a lion. I still sometimes wake up early in a cold sweat at the memory of the unforgiving morning routine I had to stick to as a child. While we Brazilians are perhaps more readily associated with carnivals, beaches and late-night revelry, when I was growing up in São Paulo in the 90s, the alarm would sound at 5.30 a.m. on weekdays. That would give me enough time to eat, dress and primp before starting school promptly at 7.15 a.m. An early start by international standards, but common in Brazil until relatively recently. My mother, a former school principal, was the first person I heard explaining how a later start might help both students and teachers. Studies have since shown that while grueling for adults, rising early is especially torturous and unhelpful to growing children, not to mention being deeply obstructive to learning and retaining knowledge. Neuroscientists have since piled in to confirm what had long been common knowledge in our household. A slightly later start can reduce classroom sleepiness and stress and contribute to higher levels of attainment. What on earth were we losing sleep over? Also, while we are at it, aren't adults in a similarly yawning productivity gap? I shudder every time I read an interview with a CEO, author or athlete who says that they gleefully wake up at 4am for a two-hour hike, some soul-searching meditation or a freezing swim. I'm Kareem Abulnaga, the founder of Practice Makes Perfect. I wake up every day at 4.30. I work out, shower, meditate and get dressed. Sometimes my meditation is just a quick minute to remind me to keep working hard and always be grateful. If it works for you, great. But should the rest of the world be coerced by this smug, sleepless feel into rising with the lark? As you have guessed, I am a late riser. My mornings are for contemplation, a gentle start and a cup of tea. Try it, you won't regret it. 
So in a world where so much of the advice for achieving success advocates unrealistic new routines that would leave most people catatonic by tea time, allow me to share what I see to be a few, perhaps tongue-in-cheek, suggestions for a flutter with us, night owls. First, don't meet before midday. If, like me, you're gainfully employed, you might not be able to decide when to wake up for work, but you can certainly have rules for the weekend. I recently visited Milan and managed to catch up with friends and visit the city's best shops, exhibitions and sites, having confidently snoozed through my alarm, had a slice of lemony cake for breakfast and only set foot past the hotel's front door as the clock struck noon. Pace yourself. Push back the appointments. Be patient. 2. Blame biology. There's no science to this one, really. More a feeling. From a young age, I've always preferred going to bed late. That meant getting up later the following day. The beat of my circadian rhythm was set when I was young. In my more generous moments, I'll admit that there is a cultural element to these patterns. My parents never forced me to go to sleep or tucked me in at strict times. That freedom gave me plenty of time to explore the racier realms of film and TV available only in the evening. So I had seen films including Basic Instinct and The Exorcist long before my peers. Do something, Dr. Please help her. Keep away! The sour is mine! 3. Transfer your expectations. Some people swear by the still silence of the mornings as a moment to clear the decks and get things done. But I found similar solace after dark. My productive evenings mean that I also feel the added pleasure of waking up with both a shorter to-do list and more time to read a paper or admire whatever's at my bird feeder. 4. Hit snooze. Some people might be their best self before sunrise. I'm not, but I get it. And isn't there a whiff of snobbery about the goody-to-shoes sorts who are up first thing doing sun salutations? For every fitness freak and king first light trail runner, there's an equally content and creative soul who is napping soundlessly and doesn't need to shout about it. 5. Fun after dark. Finally, isn't it fun to be the last one awake? It's just intuitive that things are just a little friskier after dusk. It's a time when the button-up rules of the working day come to a close, and to my mind, when a new cast of creative, interesting people comes out to play as the tuckered-out early risers hit the hay. So what has changed? Well, in Brazil today, barely a week passes without the hot topic of early starts cropping up in newspaper editorials. School classes now routinely follow the wisdom that my mother had a handle on decades ago. What's more, I feel like the tide might be turning in my favor, as the world questions the braggers, showing off about how productive they can be, how little sleep they require, and how hard they are working. Isn't there more to life? As the working week is redrawn and technology is teasing us into being awake, available and always on, it's high time that we, catnappers, snoozers and lying lovers, stood up, or lay down, for our rights. The cult of uncompromising productivity has had its moment. 
We all need to leave time for a late start now and again. Consider this your wake-up call. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We are back with The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. And we had plenty of series this week as well. One of them, it's called The Commuter, where we look at the commuters more than just a tedious necessity, but something to be enjoyed. First, we start with Erin Claire Brown, North Africa editor in New Lines magazine, and she tells us about her commute in Tunis. As a foreign correspondent posted to a city without a bureau, there are many days where my commute is just walking up the stairs in my home and closing the door on my small office to get some much-needed writing done. But on the best days, the days I'm out reporting, my morning commute takes me out into the city to hit the pavement and take the temperature of people on the streets and in the neighborhoods of Tunis. <laughs> and if I'm lucky, my first meeting of the day will be at the deli around the corner from my house, and I can bring along Tuna, my little Havanese pup. Tuna has become the mayor of our neighborhood, the seaside village of Sidi Busaid. And every morning he trots down our block past all the white houses, the kind with the deep blue cerulean trim that looks like you cut a swatch straight out of the sky, to meet his constituency. There's Kais, the security guard at the bank on the corner, who always wants to chat movies or conspiracy theories. There's Granny Layla, whose parents hid in the wine cellars below the Bay's house at the end of our block during the Nazi invasion in World War II. And then there's Zubaida, our resident busybody neighbor who is perpetually holding a bag of meat to feed the colony of feral cats that live on our block. Assalamu alaikum, she says. But before I can even get the customer alhamdulillah out of my mouth, she wants to know what the plumber was doing at our house yesterday and whether we saw the new car parked further down the block. Tuna loves Zubaida, probably because she always smells like chicken. But he's less persuaded by the neighborhood cats she feeds, particularly our block's giant grizzled tomcat, whom we call Unit. He's snub-nosed and scarred and outweighs Tuna by half. I once saw a fully grown man pleading with Unit for 20 minutes to get off his car's windscreen so he could get to work, risking being late rather than trying to shift the beast on his own. The deli, which is sat at the bottom of an imposing hill, is shaded by bitter Seville orange trees that burst into fragrant bloom each year in March and tempt disappointed tourists with their fruit all fall and winter. In the angular light of January mornings, it's not uncommon to see discarded oranges rolling down the gutter, sometimes with a bite taken out of them. Some mornings, the deli is the destination, and I post up at one of the tables on the terrace to meet with sources or catch up with colleagues and keep an eye on the revolving cast of characters that come and go. But when news is afoot in Tunis, I hail one of the city's yellow cabs for a ride into the center. It's impossibly expensive to import cars into Tunisia, so most of those on the road here are workhorses from the late 80s and early 90s, and the VW Golf ranks supreme among taxi drivers who drive them to death. I crawl into the back seat of one with a missing rear left fender, a familiar battle scar in a place where traffic laws are more suggestions than rules, and tell the driver, Avenue Habib Bourguiba, right by the clock tower, please, in a mashup of French and Tunisian Arabic. There's a modern highway that stretches from Tunis into the northern suburbs where I live, but I always ask the cabbie to take the longer way, across the old causeway that runs down the middle of the Lake of Tunis from the inland Medina. It's a glorious drive, 
with the twin peaks of Bukharnain, the mountains where the ancient Phoenicians performed sacrifices to the god Baal, rising from the Gulf of Tunis on one side and the lake on the other. In the winter, thousands of pink flamingos and other wading birds land on a lake, and in the early morning light, they look like drifts of bougainvillea petals floating on the water. The ride is made even better if I have a particularly chatty cabbie, one that wants to debate politics or foreign policy or football. Added bonus if there's a soundtrack, whether it's traditional Mezwid music, Um Kalthum, or the other queen of the Tunisian dial, Celine Dion. The causeway lets out at the very foot of Habib Bourguiba, the main avenue where, 12 years ago, tens of thousands of Tunisians protested, kickstarting the Arab Spring. It's a place that, for a long time, thrummed with energy and agitation as the country tried to bootstrap a democracy after decades under dictatorial rule. At the end of the avenue is a statue of Bourguiba, the independence leader turned autocrat, still beloved by many in the country. He sits astride a horse and looks out across the gulf into the distance, away from the city. Next to him is the Ministry of the Interior, a building whose subterranean cells and torture chambers are once again filling with political opponents as President Kai Saeed tightens his authoritarian grip. I pause for a moment, wondering which of my former sources, members of parliament, lawyers, activists, are under my feet at that very moment and shudder. The avenue itself has transformed since Kaya Syed, who was democratically elected in 2019, took a turn towards autocracy in July of 2021, shutting down the parliament and sacking his own government to rule alone. That day, a convoy of armored vehicles rolled onto the avenue and took their position alongside a statue of the 14th century philosopher Ibn Khaldun and haven't left. Tunis is quieter these days, less vibrant, perhaps because of the repression, perhaps because of the dire economic situation. Before I peel off the avenue and disappear into the worn of streets in the Medina, I grab a croissant from the last bakery that still uses butter in their pastries, and give a nod to Ibn Khaldun, and the sculpture is still visible between him and the army trucks. It spells out, I heart Tunis. And we had to L.A. for the second part of The Commuter, which is an ode to those transitory moments most of us spend on our way to and from work. Today, Monaco's U.S. editor Chris Lord talked to us about his commute. I spend a lot of time in this car, so much so that I sometimes think I can hear the sat-nav long after I've gotten out from behind the wheel. Please wait while we calculate your route. The late novelist Martin Amos once wrote that, in LA, you can't do anything unless you drive. And that's certainly true for my commute. Every morning, I get amongst the 300,000 cars that will traverse in a single day the freeway that runs behind my home in Silver Lake. In this supposed city of angels, you need the patience of a saint. In no other American city is the car such a capricious king, and a single drive can be profoundly dangerous one minute, then unfathomably dull the next. But being stuck in LA's infamous traffic also gives you plenty of time to think about the place. When I first got here, I never thought that I would end up only 18 months later having something like a grasp on this fierce grid of palm tree streets and concrete blocks. Yet the sprawl soon imprints upon your mind. 
Then you learn the freeways, the real code for getting around. And soon enough, you make monologues like this. So you come off on the five, you take the 110, then you jump on the 10 all the way down to PCH. All clear? The architecture critic, Rainer Bannum, famously loved driving in Los Angeles. I came here foolishly thinking that I could bring my old life in London out west. And in the early months, I tried commuting by bicycle. I had the smattering of bike lanes all to myself, of course, because very few others are daft enough to try it. After three close calls and many a confused motorist who would stare at me like I'd lost my mind, I decided to get with the program and rent a car. Having never driven in the States, I took lessons with a man named Juan. As we tootled around Los Angeles, Juan would regale me with tales of all the ex-prisoners he'd taught how to drive. He also instilled in me two vital lessons for making the LA commute. Here you can turn right on a red light, and sometimes you just have to make your own right of way. Because just like this city, driving LA is a daily hustle. And if you take it too seriously, it'll get the better of you. There have been so many literary tributes to life in this particular fast lane because it is a culture all of its own, a very specific way of urban being that's unlike any other city. Most of all, commuters here talk about a certain zone that you go into, utterly aware of the cars weaving between lanes in front of you, but also somehow calm amidst the chaos. Rainer Bannum described it as a heightened state of awareness that some locals find mystical. How very brilliantly LA. We end the curator with the global countdown. This time, it's some of the top summer songs this year. Let me paint the picture for our listeners. You've handed me some visual aids. I don't know what I'm looking at, but I'm not sure I like where this might be headed. <laughs> what have you got up your lime-coloured sleeve for me today? Today's a special one, Tom. It's the summer of love. So basically... I am looking at the trends of the summer songs for this year and I can see a few pointers here. It's very carefree, very sexy, a little bit retro as well. So if you like Eurodance from the late 90s, early 90s, you're in for a treat. Uh, and, and of course, I chose six tracks. I'm very bad with numbers. It's very difficult to keep it at five. But I promise <laughs> next, week, right, next week we come back with five. So at number six, Tom, that's the visual aids because a lot of people here in the office were curious about my choices. So this guy, his name is Baby Morocco. And no, he's not a baby and he's not from Morocco. He <laughs> is uh, an English musician, I have to say. He okay. was uh, born here in London. And, and I think what you're seeing is some stills from the video he did for one of his tracks which we're going to hear it now and then we can discuss it is Baby Morocco with Sun Sex Party and He's quite beefed up, as you can see in the visual aids, and he's in a kind of a beach volleyball court near housing state. I don't know if that's in London, to be fair, Tom. You know, it, it, it's, it's quite uh, unique uh, in a way. That's very polite, Fernando. Can I say, 
I'm not loving that. But, you know, but I, I think that's a trend. I think it's a little tribute to that kind of carefree, an era without worries. You're just having a lot of drinks and making love and doing beautiful things. <laughs> so I, I think... Okay, well, I'll let, let's let our listeners be the judge of that. That's not is exactly where it took me. Hedonistic. A little bit hedonistic. Hedonism. Okay. <laughs> Shall we move on to number five? <laughs> number five, that's an interesting one, Tong. It's He's one of the biggest stars in Denmark, Tobias Rahin. Uh, and he released a track uh, in August 2021 called Stormand, which means big man. The track has been a massive hit. I mean, and it's an everlasting song. So Tobias wanted a little bit of the Swedish market as well. So he kind of did a few changes. And instead of Stormand, we have Storman, which is also big man, but in Swedish, there's a little difference there in one of the letters. And he invited, uh, again, a big star in Sweden called Victor Lexell. This is a bit gentler, I think. Okay. You might like this, actually. And Tobias, I mean, I say he's a big star in, in Denmark. He's six foot seven, so literally wow, he's okay. a big star. Let's have a listen to Tobias <laughs> Rahin, Starman. <laughs> Uh, that's a significant improvement on Baby Morocco. <laughs> Come on, I do like Baby Morocco, I have to say. But, but this is interesting. I like this idea of, you know, uh, tailoring what you do for specific markets. Very, uh, you know, it's kind of a unique, well, it's not a unique approach, but it's interesting because we uh, one would imagine that what would play in one of those countries would play in the other, but... I guess you can there are little differences. be much more successful that way. And, uh, you know, yeah, Tobias Rahin, there was a profile about him on the New York Times, and he said that he really wants to export Danish music worldwide. I mean, of course, the country had other bands, including Aqua, if I may say, but I, I like that. He's, he really wants to represent his country. He's a very interesting uh, man as well, Tobias Rahin. Good stuff. Uh, now... Number four. This is it. We've we've discussed this, I think, mm. in a different sort of context. But uh, tell our listeners what you've got at number four. So, as you know, Tom, the Idol, the series from HBO about an aspiring pop star uh, featuring The Weeknd as well, was a bit of a flop. I think uh, ratings. I mean, the reviews have been pretty bad. I've seen it. I I understand a little bit why. But then there is a, the soundtrack for it is amazing. And uh, Jocelyn, which is the fake pop star in, in, in the series they made a song for her so it's a little bit matter because the song is actually quite good uh, and people are enjoying the song is doing very well in the charts in, the, in Spotify uh, so I quite like that so yes a little bit trashy very manufactured but very good for the summer. And that's kind of the point, is that the sound is manufactured, right? Exactly. And, 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 and it shows that actually there's no problem with that sometimes. Let's have a listen to Lily Rose Dapp, which plays the fake pop star Jocelyn, world-class sinner. I'm just a freak, yeah. You know It's it's a great song, and I have to say I've been singing. I'm just a freak. Yeah, you know it's it's so cool. I wondered why you were saying that around the office. Here's one for you though, Faye. Listen, the, the show is a bit of a turkey. Mm. We I spoke to our Karen Krasanovich about it. She mm. hated it and <laughs> what it represents and what it, the messages that it that it sends out. I know it was very controversial. 
a cynic might say, look, you know, did the execs behind it say, well, look, even if it absolutely takes a bath, we can make a load of bunts from peddling the, the the track that's not how this went down is it I, well I, I think a little bit and of course just having the weekend in the series i mean he's a massive pop star i mean his concerts are still sold out uh, everywhere as i said Tom, i think it's a great song it's incredibly catchy and i think the idol might be one of those series that in 10 years time might become a little bit of cult oh, uh, so, so bad it's good slow burn showgirl style yes. revisionism yes absolutely i have to say it looks pretty bad so <laughs> let's talk in 10 years, 10 years time. maybe 20 years um Let's head on to the top three. I think three is fun. Uh, she's a Ghanaian-American, and I love her music. It's a mixture of electro, R&B, some Afrobeats in there. And this song is perfect for the summer. It's called Co-Star. And the reason why it's called Co-Star, because it is about astrological love, choosing your partners just because of their uh, astrological sign, but done in a fun way. Let's have a listen. She didn't mention the astrological signs there, but the lyrics is like Scorpio and Knight, me and Leo, it felt like threesomes, tease me like a Taurus. It's fun. I mean, people care. Actually, people care about astrology. I keep saying this, Tom. Well, you tell me people care. I know you care. Honestly, go to the first floor here in Midori House. People are talking about it. So this is a meditation on compatibility, kind of, but with a bit of extra filth into the mix. And an extra uh, electro beat as well. Let's move on to number two, Fernando. <laughs> uh, number two, I mean, this song, I am in love with it. It's funny because, I mean, Troy Sivan has always been a, a very decent Australian singer, but I think now he's at his pop star phase. That's the first single of his upcoming album uh, in October, and it's sweaty. You know, it's an ode to the dance floor. It's sexy, it's controversial. It was shot in Berlin by uh, fashion director Gordon von Meister as well. Uh, it's a fantastic song, and I think it would do very well for the summer. Uh, it's been released a few days ago, but everybody's dancing. And let's have a listen. tell fernando are we is this a sultry summer of sweltering sensual hits or is this just fernando's take on the music market listen i genuinely think it's a it's a sultry summer and 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 you might ask isn't it every year no i think this year people are rediscovering fun music wise again just kind of you know pop music can be serious at times which is great but i think this summer people decided just to relax and in this song in particular i like Troy Sivan because english is not my first language so i like a little bit of rhyming so he rhymes communication with vibration simulation with stimulation i like that He's got to be careful where he's going with <laughs> yeah. some of those. Fernando, you're just 
treading the right side of the Ofcom guidelines so far. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what's at the top of the uh, at the top of the pile this week? I mean, she's great. South uh, Korean DJ Peggy Goo. She's amazing. And to be honest, this song surprised me because it's been climbing up the charts here in the UK. I think at the moment is at number five, so it's higher than many you know artists like Kylie Minogue, for example. And again, it has that Balearic vibe from the late 90s, something you would hear in Ibiza. And Peggy Goo said in an interview, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it is a little bit retro, but I think, you know, I want to do that. It's nice to be groundbreaking as well, but it's also nice to look back as well. Uh, and, and I have a story to tell about Peggy Goo. One day I was coming back from work um, in London Soho Square. There was a crowd of people and I was like, what's happening? It was Peggy Goo performing this song impromptu i think she said on social media i'll be there in Seoul square in, in an hour's time and it was crazy and she was distributing copies of her single as well i like that about her so maybe that's why she's our number one uh, lovely story i guess we have to take a listen to this as well do we, Fernando? yes it's peggy goo with it goes like na 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 on my mind I guess it goes like that That sounds sufficiently irritating that it will continue to be everywhere. I mean, is, yes. that, is that correct? I hope she comes back to Soho Square at home because I saw people so happy and I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And I was like, Peggy, go just give me a copy of her single. Again, physical single. So, you That's know, there's good. still a space That's one of the most that. Fernando stories I've ever heard. Okay, exactly. so come on, you've got six to choose from. Uh, pick your pick of the pick. I've I got to be honest, I think Peggy Goo is great, but I think Troy Sivan, I just can't stop listening to him. And, and he surprised me as an artist. Sexy video as well. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>